Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And we are closing in on the end of our mini-series on China during the uh, time of Chairman Mao Zedong. And we've talked in the last two installments about how China's Great Leap Forward movement, which started in 1958, was almost entirely a failure. Yes, it allowed the nation to streamline some production and to build some new infrastructure, but a lot of that work was was of inferior quality. It eventually crumbled or failed. And the consequences of deforestation and dam building and wetlands draining and other attempts to tame the land wound up being ecologically devastating. And, most notably, the Great Leap Forward's policies led directly to a famine in which an estimated 35 to 45 million people died. By the time the Great Leap Forward ended, Chairman Mao Zedong had been replaced as the Chinese head of state, but he was still the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. And as such, he still maintained enormous power and influence. But thanks to the failure of the Great Leap Forward, by the 1960s, that power was really waning, and he was under huge pressure to fix things. He also thought the People's Republic of China was heading in the wrong direction. It lacked revolutionary spirit, and it was trending toward capitalism and away from its communist ideals. He was really worried that disparity and inequality were on the rise, which just ran completely contrary to the egalitarian ideas that he had been pursuing. And he thought the same thing was happening in the Soviet Union, too. It seemed to him that after the death of Joseph Stalin, the Soviet Union was contaminating itself with capitalism. He also suspected that some of his opposition wanted to bring back the old imperial regime, regime which had ended when he was in his late teens. Mao's great plan to address all of these problems and to once again put China on the path to modernization was the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution, or just known as the Cultural Revolution, which started in 1966. It fell roughly into two phases, a really aggressive, radical phase of purges and arrests that went from 1966 to 1968, and a revision of China's culture and government that followed and continued until Mao's death in 1976. So we're going to tackle each of these phases in a separate episode, and that will conclude this mini-series. Ta-da! Which has been a Herculean effort, so I'm feeling a little relieved right now. <laughs> um, to begin with the revolutionary ideas that started all of this, Mao's third wife, Xiang Qing, had been an actress before the pair married. And many of the other party leaders were actively distrustful of her. So at first, she mostly worked low-level positions within the government. Before the start of the Cultural Revolution, she was working in the Central Propaganda Department at the Ministry of Culture. She was one of the people who decided what kinds of operas and dramatic works could be performed in China. In 1965, she kind of outlined all the things that she thought had failed about the changes Mao had tried to make in China China so far. In her view, the next aspect of the revolution needed to be specifically cultural. Now, we're going to talk about her specific contributions to China's culture during the revolution in the next episode. But she was an important figure in all this. So we would really be remiss if we put off mentioning her until later. 
The Central Committee of the CCP met in May of 1966 to launch the Cultural Revolution. It issued a 16-point set of guidelines outlining the revolution on August 8th of the same year. It is not, unfortunately, a simple list of 16 things or we would read them off. Mao wanted to attack the, quote, four olds. These were old ideas, culture, customs, and beliefs. Anything that seemed bourgeois or feudal was to be destroyed. And this, Mao thought, would just clear the way for new greatness in art and literature and education. Also to be removed from Chinese culture were the so-called five black elements. So those were landlords, rich peasants, counter-revolutionaries, bad elements, and rightists. So to specify what some of those are... Counter-revolutionaries were anyone who was critical of Mao and his plans, and bad elements were basically criminals. Rightists were people who had been critical of the party and the government during the Hundred Flowers campaign, which we talked about in more detail during the Great Leap Forward episode. Mao also wanted to close the gap between rural people and urban people and between laborers and intellectuals. About 80% of China's population lived in rural areas. Many of them were extremely poor. And on the other hand, there was another more privileged class of people that included landlords, intellectuals, and others. And these people had wealth and status, while the peasantry simply did not. And Mao wanted to end this disparity and China's long history of elitism in its more privileged classes. One of his first steps was to send university students to the country to work and to be, quote, re-educated. They were going to work on farms and to learn from the proletariat or the working class people. And this served multiple purposes simultaneously. It got the young intellectuals who Mao considered to be a threat out of the way. It did an end run around unemployment problems that were plaguing China's cities. If they were working in the country, these students would not be competing for jobs when they finished school. And it provided additional labor for the peasantry, and it gave the peasantry an opportunity to learn from students uh, that had now moved in, down to basic skills like literal literacy and math. By the fall of 1968, 1. 1.5 million university students had been sent to the country to work. And Mao had a different plan for China's younger students. So while the university students were immediately being sent to the country, the high school age students were encouraged to join a new organization called the Red Guard. The Red Guard was a pseudo army empowered to seek out and deal with the five black elements. It had the flavor of a grassroots movement and of radical youth movements that existed in other parts of the world in the 1960s. But really... Participation was encouraged and enabled by the government, specifically by Mao. Being in the Red Guard was simultaneously a political act and an act of rebellion. The Red Guard was supportive of Mao and destructive towards his adversaries. But at the same time, it was rebellious, it was violent, and it was hard to control. It was, after all, essentially an army of teenagers operating with little to no adult supervision and empowered by their government to aggressively pursue enemies. Even if adults wanted to curb the Red Guard's more extreme behavior, they really couldn't for fear of being branded counter-revolutionaries and then targeted by the Red Guard themselves. This was especially true considering how wholeheartedly Mao was in support of the Red Guard's activities, so much so that he closed all the schools in June of 1966 so students could participate. Then he met them in Beijing for a series of rallies. 
So uh, if you know anything about Mao, you know that he had this immense cult of personality. And he really wanted to inspire fervor in these young people. So he made grand gestures like trying to, to swim across the Yangtze River, which the youth then emulated. After this series of rallies in Beijing, many of the ones who had gotten the chance to meet the chairman refused to wash the hands they'd used to touch him. He also granted the students free rail passes so that they could engage in what was known as, quote, revolutionary tourism. The students made what's known as big character posters. So posters with slogans, criticisms, and the like, written in Chinese characters and hung up on buildings. Mao made one of his own to further cement his connection to the youth. And probably the most memorable part of the connection between Mao and the Red Guard, they carried with them a copy of quotations from the works of Mao Zedong, or Mao's Little Red Book, and they would refer to it regularly. In their work to seek out dissenters, counter-revolutionaries, capitalists, and anyone else who didn't fit in with Mao's ideology, the Red Guard became zealous and ruthless. Their targets included intellectuals, teachers, capitalists, as we mentioned, and party officials who were critical of Mao. They raided the homes of perceived enemies, who they often beat, humiliated, and imprisoned. Some of their targets were sent into forced labor and re-education programs around the country. Some were imprisoned, as we said, and some were killed. The Red Guard raided more than 100,000 homes in Beijing alone. 1,700 people died. Some of these were suicides following the Red Guard's public humiliation. The worst month was August of 1966, which became known as Red August. There wasn't just one monolithic Red Guard, though. There were differences in how these groups behaved and how they conducted themselves because they weren't really reporting to any kind of central leadership. In some cases, the Red Guard factions formed rivalries and they clashed against each other really violently, with each faction believing that it and none of the others was correctly interpreting and following the views of Chairman Mao. In Beijing, for example, many of the Red Guard's members were children of high-ranking members of the CCP. They banded together and, in a group known as Coordinated Action, carried out what was called the Red Terror, a horrifying and violent campaign that was meant to protect their parents. This was really the opposite of what the Red Guard was intended to do, because the parents that they were protecting were people who were suspected of capitalist leanings. They were actually meant to be the people that the Red Guard would be pursuing. So by September of 1967, so the Red Guard had been going on for about a year, uh, it was near anarchy in some cities. And Mao and Defense Minister Lin Biao deployed troops to try to restore order. The People's Liberation Army was also stationed around nuclear power plants, museums, and the like that were threatened by the Red Guard's violence. Mao himself was astonished at the level of violence and anarchy that the Red Guard had turned to. By 1968, the fervor and intensity of the Red Guard had become a liability, so Mao started handing more power over to the People's Liberation Army instead. A common misperception is that the Red Guard rampaged all over China throughout the Cultural Revolution. But really, its heyday was 1966, and by 1968, it was really on the wane. Mao was shocked by how violent and zealous they had become, and he recognized that they had really outlived their usefulness. So, at that point, high school-aged children joined the university students in being sent to the country to work. 
By 1978, 16 million students total had been sent to the country, and sending young people into the country also went all the way through the Cultural Revolution and after it was over, with that practice ending in 1980.、Uh, it reminds me of like Lord of the Flies. That's exactly what I was thinking <laughs> as well. So,、uh, before we get to the the other hallmark of this part of the Cultural Revolution. Let's take a brief moment for a word from a sponsor. That sounds grand. So to return to the Cultural Revolution, along with all of his goals to close the wealth gap, elevate China's proletariat, and inspire a revolutionary spirit in the nation's youth, another one of Mao's objectives in the Cultural Revolution was to get rid of anyone in the government who opposed him, so that he could ensure that his successors would carry on his work the way he wanted after he was gone. So, running alongside the Red Guard's work among China's intellectuals, capitalists, and rightist citizens, both real and suspected, was an ongoing purge of the same influences in China's government. For the most part, Mao didn't go directly after his highest-ranking opponents. Instead, he would go after their underlings. He would discredit them, publicly humiliate them, or have them arrested. Then, once their support within the party had been destroyed, he would go after those bigger targets who became much. Easier to take down without their supporters.、Uh, one of these was Liu Shaoqi,、uh, who we mentioned in the Great Famine episode. He was at that point China's head of state. He had replaced Mao in 1959, at which point it was clear that Mao's Great Leap Forward was failing. We also pronounced his name just a little bit differently in that episode because I found a different and better pronunciation resource between when we recorded the first two episodes and these two episodes. And neither of us speaks a tonal language. We are really trying. <laughs>、um, Leo had vocally argued against the Great Leap Forward when he realized how devastating it had turned out to be for China's farmers. Unlike other leaders who had begun to sway Mao away from the Great Leap policies, Leo had criticized Mao directly rather than shifting the blame to other people, saying they had sort of misinterpreted or wrongly carried out Mao's vision. And this work, while crucial to ending the famine, came back to bite him. Liu was removed from office in 1966, beaten and imprisoned, and he died in prison in 1969. Deng Xiaoping was the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, and he was purged from his office as well, along with two thirds of the Communist Party's Central Committee. Purges continued through 1967 and 1968, and these mostly took place in cities and also included members of the People's Liberation Army. Purged officials would be exiled, imprisoned, or sent into forced labor. More generally, intellectuals were sent into the country and re-educated as well. That often meant that the people who had been running things were no longer there to run them. So businessmen, administrators, engineers, and others who were doing jobs that required an education were instead sent to rural areas to do forced labor, or sometimes sent to prison or killed. The people who moved into these positions often simply did not have the knowledge or the skills to do them. They abolished regulations and abandoned the procedures that industries had previously followed. Especially for the late 1960s years of the Cultural Revolution, China's economy really suffered dramatically as a consequence. And in 1968, the Chinese economy also started to collapse, with virtually every economic measure dropping well below prior years' levels. 
Between 1967 and 1969, there was just a huge focus on, quote, purifying class ranks. And this went so far as to look back into people's family trees and whether they had family members in the past who had been counter-revolutionary or had immigrated outside of China. People were persecuted for their own fam- their own backgrounds and that of their family members, including, like, in the past, like their their parents and grandparents. Whether they were still in touch with these family members or whether they still held so-called counter-revolutionary beliefs, tens of thousands of people were killed in the resulting investigations. This threw China's cities completely into chaos. With organizations failing after their leaders were exiled or arrested, media outlets that had been sponsored by those organizations failed. The number of magazines and newspapers being printed in China plummeted, and the ones that remained were under the oversight of the state. In addition to the perception that China's elite had attitudes that were threatening to Mao's vision of order, they also had stuff. If you were an intellectually elite person, if you made a good income, you probably owned things like paintings and artifacts and collections of things that were historically or culturally valuable in some way. So owning artwork became considered to be bourgeois, and so did being a professional artist. So since China's art had a long history of being politically oriented in some way, a lot of the existing art also celebrated ideals that were no longer considered to be acceptable. And this is what led China, mostly at the hands of the Red Guard, to destroy cultural and historical treasures during the Cultural Revolution. Portrayals of this in the West are often along the lines of every possible artifact with any hint whatsoever of bourgeoisie or imperialism just being destroyed. And while entire historical sites were reduced to rubble and a lot of artifacts were destroyed, it wasn't quite the wholesale destruction of a nation's entire artistic and cultural history that you kind of see in Western portrayals sometimes. Books and documents really fared the worst, since they were easy to burn or pulp, and the Red Guard would err on the side of suspicion when dealing with them. But often when the Red Guard raided someone's home, they would turn over things that were obviously valuable to the state. And as word spread of what the Red Guard was doing, people sometimes destroyed their own possessions preemptively. There also, as it became clear that the Red Guard was out of control, uh, there were some efforts on the part of the government to protect things that were really culturally important and needed to be preserved. So it wasn't as though the government completely turned a blind eye and was like, just smash it all. Like, that's not that's not what's going on. But by 1969, China's intellectual class had been gutted. Its government had been cleared out of nearly all dissent, either real or imagined. Its cities had been thrown into chaos and its economy had been run off the rails. Works of art, artifacts, and monuments had been destroyed. This really left an open playing field for Mao to recraft the nation's government, culture, and way of thought to suit his own ends. And that is what we are going to talk about in our next episode. Oh, it breaks my heart to think of all that art being destroyed. I kind of have to pinch myself to not get choked up when we talk about it. Uh, Do you have some listener mail for us to enjoy? I do. I am going to read a a pretty happy piece of listener mail. Hooray! Uh, This is from Valentine. And he says, hello, Tracy and Holly. Love the show. Your episode on Gallaudet University, Deaf President Now, opened our minds to the deaf community. 
This led me to attend ASL meetings and pivot the promotion of our startup, MyBell. And he has a video that I will put in our show notes so you can watch it too. Uh, MyBell is basically a digital thing that you can mount on the handlebars of a bicycle. So it will play like pre-recorded instead of just a regular bicycle bell. Uh, it will play pre-recorded things that you can use in place of a bell. Listening to one podcast, yours, led to some brainstorming and a string of miraculous events. During our Kickstarter, we hit a plateau and were running out of ideas on what to do. To relax and clear my mind, I naturally listened to your podcast and stumbled, stumbled upon the DPN episode. This led to visualizing how our product can help deaf cyclists, deaf cyclists as described in our video. And I'm going to tell you, in case you don't get to watch the video, to take a break from the letter, um, it is by recording things like on your left. So like having a pre-recorded thing that says on your left to play as you approach someone that you're going to pass on your bicycle um, to better communicate with the, like a hearing cyclist in front of you that, that you're coming up behind them to get back to the letter. From there, I contacted Carrie Brewer, a deaf cycling activist. Our minds clicked and she sent us a video testimony. Also, I started attending local ASL meetings, satisfying my childhood desire to learn sign language. At the ASL meeting, I met Big Wang, a filmmaker learning ASL for his next project, which is on children of deaf adults. He played a big role in making the promotion, editing subtitles, ASL voiceover, and B footage simultaneously. Once the video was done, we sent it to every deaf media outlet available. Since then, we have been on the Daily Moth, Deaf TV, and just this Monday, uh, iDeaf News interviewed us, and a new friend from the ASL meeting was happy to be our interpreter. In the end, our Kickstarter did not meet its goal, but learning how our product can help deaf cyclists, the adventures involved are priceless. Thank you, Valentine. Thank you, Valentine, for writing to us. I love that whole idea so much. I do. And, and I, I kind of interrupted the letter a couple of times to explain what the video is, because, you know, we can't play you the video right now in this audio podcast uh, to see what it was that he was talking about. And it's a really cool idea and something I had not ever thought of before, which is one of the reasons we pick episodes like this to try to get people to think about things that maybe they have never thought of before. So I had never thought of uh, if you are not a speaking person. How do you communicate? How do you communicate with the person in front of you when you were on a bicycle? Apart from just a bell, which is not a very, like, there's no bell code of yeah ways to ring the bicycle bell for people to know what you're doing. It makes noise and it might get attention, but there's no clear definition of what it means. Yeah. Well, and I, I think I also, uh, there is a bike path near where I live now that mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time on. And so I also am more aware of uh, the things that cyclists do to try to let pedestrians know uh, what is going on behind them. Yeah. So anyway, I am really glad that this podcast was able to, you know, inspire somebody to think of a new use for something they were trying to do. So it's cool. pretty awesome. Yeah. So cool. If you would like to write to us, you can. We are at historypodcast.howstuffworks.com. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash history and our Twitter is at history. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and we're on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash history. We also have a Spreadshirt store. You can reach it from the homepage of our website, which is mistinhistory.com, or you can just go to mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com if you want to go straight there. If you would like to learn a little more about what we've talked about today, 
you can come to our parent company's website and put the word Mao into the search bar. And you will find Mao's just kind of unfortunate place. I'm saying this because the circumstances were unfortunate, not the placement was unfortunate. In an article called The Top 10 Public Enemies. Uh, that is at HowStuffWorks.com. Or you can come to our website where we will put up show notes that include all of the sources that we've used for this, as well as a link to the video we were just talking about uh, for the, the digital bicycle bell. You can do all of that and a whole lot more at our website, which is mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 